Hallelujah. Lord, we celebrate and proclaim the truth of that song this morning. Your wounds have paid our ransom. And your resurrection has sealed, Lord, for all time, the security, the certainty of our future resurrection in Christ. Remind us of the picture of baptism. Having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him, through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. We thank you, Lord, for the promise and picture that baptism represents. Seal it upon all of our hearts, and especially Tanner's this morning, as we rejoice in this opportunity to proclaim your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. In just a moment, I'll invite you to stand if you're able for the reading of the Word. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, Paul is giving instructions to the church. We read at the introduction of this message, Matthew 28, the close of Matthew's gospel, which gives to us connections of authority to the message or to baptism. The book of Colossians gives us an explanation of baptism. And so I'd like to open with that. These summary statements from the Apostle Paul this morning for our message today. So now if you're able, stand with me if you would. And with your Bibles open to Colossians chapter 2, we will read verses 9 through 14 together. For in Him, that is in Christ... The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, and which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him." You may be seated. This is the word of the Lord. This morning's message in anticipation of Tanner's baptism today is entitled, Rite of Naturalization. A disclaimer for you, this is going to be a for-the-record sermon in bullet point form. It won't be the extended message that we have on most Sundays but more of a summary and overview of some pictures and allusions and ideas connected with baptism from these verses that we just read, as well as Matthew 28, and our primary text will be Matthew 16. So while you're turning to Matthew 16, let me give you this note of introduction. Matthew's gospel closes in chapter 28 with the command and commission to go make disciples of all nations, to baptize and to teach them. Christ grounds this injunction. That is, before Christ says, go and make disciples, He says the following, All authority 
in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go. Christ grounds the injunction, the command to disciple and to baptize with contextual weight by proclaiming His own authority. Thus we are to fulfill His church as His faithful and obedient disciples. We are to fulfill our missionary call as believers fully cognizant, fully realizing and confidently grounded on the crown rights, the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, our King Jesus Christ. In light of these concluding words in Matthew, it is clear that we understand, we ought to understand baptism as a right of naturalization for the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Webster's 1828 defines, dictionary defines naturalize as to confer to an alien the rights and privileges of a native subject or citizen. To, in relationship to foreigners, to adopt foreigners into a nation or state and place them in the condition of natural born subjects. This is what we mean by a right of naturalization. That is to say, baptism, in baptism, we are initiated visibly and representatively into the kingdom of God. And this is grounded upon, this is by the authority of Christ. And the right of baptism is a picture on the outward of what has already taken place on the inside, namely the regeneration, the new birth of the human heart where God fundamentally changes our being to be in right relationship with Him by imputing His righteousness and law-keeping to our account so that as we've read in Colossians, on that grounds and basis, the debt of our own sin is removed from us and nailed to the cross, as it were. Christ has suffered and sacrificed His blood in exchange for our righteousness. The death that we deserved, He incurred for us. The command to baptize is given in Matthew 28 as we've read. The explanation of baptism, or one of them, is given to us in Colossians 2. But now in Matthew 16, let's consider briefly this morning, authority foundational to baptism. The authority of Christ foundational to the naturalizing rite of baptism. When Christ says in Matthew 28, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and baptize. What authority is he referring to? Well, uh, fittingly, at the close of the book, we are reminded of the context of Matthew when he says those things. We're reminded of the grounds and the weight of baptism when we take into account in the larger context of Matthew the authority of Christ therein revealed. And in Matthew 16, which happens to be the passage that we're considering now in our expositional track through the book, we find eight points this morning, very briefly, of Christ's authority. We find in Matthew 16, revelatory authority, christening, naming authority, commissioning authority, predestining authority, atoning supernatural authority, judicial authority, and divine authority. Matthew 16, 17, read with me if you would. Backing up actually to verse 13 to get the context here. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said to Him, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, Christ said to His disciples, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, 
You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the revelation of who Christ is in His person and work, is contingent upon the authority or the revelatory authority of God, His power and prerogative to reveal it to the human heart. Tanner is a believer this morning, not because, most foundationally, of his mental assent. Tanner, neither him nor any of us, has the ability to understand the hidden things of God until they are revealed, not by our own power of reasoning, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. Neither does it depend on the convincing argument or articulation of the gospel minister. He is called only to speak God's word anyway. Anything else he says by way of addition or illustration does not ultimately serve to convince, to persuade, to awaken blind eyes, and to raise the dead. When we are reminded of the authority of Christ that is foundational to the naturalizing rite of baptism, we are reminded that the truth of the gospel is revealed to our understanding, and it is in our grasp only because The Father God, as He did to Peter, revealed it to us. And thus we have been born again by the resurrecting power, by the illuminating authority of God the Father through the Word of Jesus Christ, His Son. Secondly, the authority of Christ, foundational to the understanding and weight of the naturalizing rite of baptism, where we are counted in the kingdom of God and the good favor and graces of our Lord and King Jesus Christ is christening authority. That is the authority to re-identify or name. Christening, the term literally means to name someone at baptism. To name someone at baptism. God has this right. God has this authority. And it is, a, it is, it is an authority that supersedes the right of parents even, natural parents, to name their children. Jesus exercised this prerogative and right in the context of this very passage. Read again Matthew 16, 16. Simon Peter, we find his name there, naturally given. Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. That means Simon, son of your earthly father. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. But listen closely to the next verse, 18. And I tell you, That is, Christ tells Peter, his disciple, you are Peter. Notice he gave him a new name. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Thus we see that the authority of Christ to christen his disciple is pictured here. This authority supersedes natural family rights to name and identify and even to instruct their children in the way they should go. That is, parents have a delegated authority under God to name, as it were, identify and raise their children in the faith. And so if there is one who lies outside the faith, when he comes to Christ, when she comes to Christ, it is recognized that he is given, she is given a new name, a new identity, as it were, identified now with Christ, now in him, and Christ's 
christening authority is foundational to our understanding of what baptism is. It's a new us and it's a new relationship. We are now adopted into the family of God, children of the Heavenly Father, united with our brother, as it were, and as it is explained in Scripture, Jesus Christ. Number three, commissioning authority. Christ goes on to say in this section in verse 18, as He commands and commissions His disciples to go forth, Verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In baptism, we understand that there is a grounding authority not only to re-identify, but to recommission, to give, as it were, purpose and direction to life. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, Christ says to his disciples, anticipating discourse number four. He will go on to explain in chapter 18 exactly what this will look like. His people will have a new name. His people will have a revelation. And his people will have a new life direction, purpose, and call to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And ultimately, this is underscored at the close of the book itself, as we read earlier in the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations. Revelatory, christening, commissioning, authority, and four, predestining authority. Matthew 16, 21, there's a shift in the narrative. We find it in these three words, from that time. Now Jesus begins to explain all that He must suffer as He sets His face to Jerusalem. Jesus began, it says in verse 21, to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Peter opposes this notion and is forthrightly rebuked. But later, after the Holy Ghost Himself baptizes the apostles and in fullness of understanding of what their new life and relationship to Christ represents, they themselves affirm in Acts 4, 27 and 28, the predestining authority of God, even in the act of redemption where Jesus would be killed at the hands of wicked men. For truly in this city, it is recorded in Acts, in the prayers of the saints then, freshly illumined by the Holy Spirit's miraculous work, were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever... Your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And so we'll find shortly in Tanner's own story, evidence of God's sovereignty, sovereignly by His prerogative and power, arranging the circumstances of our own life to bring us to Christ, even as He arranged the circumstances of the people, the power players, the wicked men, and those who would slay His Son, At this time, and Jesus prophesied as much, and the reason He had this foreknowledge is because it was in the perfect plan of the Father. This predestining authority is evident in theology and a term we call, uh, in the term we call the covenant of redemption. In covenant history's big picture, we understand that there was an agreement between the persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that the Son would give His life a ransom for many, that the Father would arrange and plan, and that the Holy Spirit would apply this propitiatory sacrifice to all who would come to Christ. In baptism, we're reminded of the predestining authority of the Godhead, 
that undergirds the weight of what we witness even today. Fifthly, atoning authority. Matthew 6, 21, Jesus, as he has described, is going to go to the cross and be killed. He will suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. He reiterates this later in 17. He says in verse 22 and 23, As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill Him, and He will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Baptism, as is given to us in Scripture, is a picture of safety through the waters of judgment because of the cleansing act and the power of the sacrificial blood of Christ shed for us. Only Christ and His perfect sacrifice and His holy blood shed had the authority to ultimately atone for sins. Only the perfect God and perfect man laying down His life was sufficient to provide a sacrifice once and for all for those who could never save themselves. And thus the atoning authority of Christ, inasmuch as His perfect blood shed, is the only possible hope and means for salvation for mankind is evident underneath, undergirding the meaning and weight of baptism. Sixthly, Matthew 16, 21, we find there's a supernatural authority that is pictured here. Jesus will suffer many things from the elders in verse 21 again and chief priests and scribes and be killed. But on the third day something will happen. He will be raised. That is raised from the dead. Jesus reiterated this. We've read it in our last point. Verse 23, they will kill him. Chapter 17, he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. You see, what the disciples didn't realize at this time, what Peter and company could not conceive as messianic power over the grave. Peter and his companions could imagine messianic power over Rome. They could imagine Jesus reigning victorious over the political authority. But they could not imagine, at this point, they could not conceive supernatural authority. Jesus ruling and reigning over the grave. But this is exactly what He would do in His resurrection. He would declare the defeat of sin, Satan, death, and the grave. The ultimate sanction for the breaking of the covenant all the way back to Adam and Eve. The promise of death for sin. The wages of sin is death. But He, in the giving of His life and in the resurrection from the dead, would declare victory and provide abundant life, and he would be victorious, and his supernatural authority over death and the grave would be pictured and would be evident in the historical events of redemption. And it is also pictured and evident in baptism. Romans 6.1 and Colossians 2.9-15, as we've already read, say as much. Romans 6.1 and the verses which shortly follow, remind us that baptism is itself a picture of our identity and our union with Christ's redemptive work. What shall we say then? Romans 6. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? 
Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For we have been united with Him in a death like His. We shall surely be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. But now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death will no longer have dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. For you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, baptism is a picture of the supernatural authority of Christ. Number seven, judicial authority. Christ will return, He promises, even in the section, our text in Matthew 16, to judge. He told His disciples in verse 24, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for My sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Or what shall a man give in return for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. And here we're reminded that our Lord Jesus Christ has judicial authority. There will come a judgment, sometimes judgments in time, incrementally, and ultimately a judgment for all at the close of time. And the only hope to be expunged of our crimes, that the record of our wrongs would be wiped away, is that in the picture of baptism, we would be seen as clean and pure and innocent because Christ has suffered on our behalf. We're reminded again of the legal language that is pictured in that great passage that we read in Colossians. I'll remind you again. This is the picture that Paul uses. He says in Colossians, again, in verse 13, And you who are dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him by what? Uh, Having done what? Having forgiven all our trespasses. He goes on to describe the legal ramifications of this event, verse 14, by what? Canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. And so the judicial authority of Christ undergirds baptism. We are justified by His blood. And the legal demands of our punishment due to our sin is now applied to the cross of Christ. Finally, and in closing this morning, we're reminded in the next chapter, in Matthew 17, that is, of divine authority. Who is this Christ who has declared these terms and conditions of the kingdom to His disciples thus far? Well, He is affirmed not just by testimony of His wisdom, as He has said, wisdom is justified by her children. He is affirmed not just as the greater one, going toe-to-toe with the Pharisees who has authority, not as their scribes, 
but as one who delivers in a unique way the power of God. He is affirmed not only in His own audible voice, who speaks with clarity and truth, fulfilling the promises of old, every jot and tittle of the law and the prophets that preceded Him. But He is additionally affirmed by an audible voice from heaven on the Mount of Transfiguration, which underscores and proclaims for all history to hear, for those who have ears to hear, divine authority. He was transfigured in verse 2, chapter 17, Matthew's gospel before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here if you wish. I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Verse 6, when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one of the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Divine authority affirmed from God the Father in a thunderous voice from heaven striking fear into the heart of the yet ignorant to some degree disciples as they were terrified to see the authority contained in the one who walked with them, spoke to them, and would shortly die for them, be resurrected by His own power as He takes His life up again and then be descended to the Father to rule and reign triumphantly over every last enemy as they are incrementally brought in subjection under His feet even as it's finally secure in the work on Calvary. And so in this testimony of divine authority, we see clearly that we ought to obey the command And every true and legitimate church has, since the time this injunction was issued, recognizing that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Christ. Matthew 28, 18, We go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Packer says, As preaching makes the word audible, so the sacraments make it visible, and God stirs up faith by both means. As preaching, and I pray even this morning's message, has made the word of God audible, so the sacraments, so baptism makes it visible, and God stirs up faith by both means. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning, in the heart of Tanner as he is soon to be baptized, in the hearts of all of us onlookers, that you would make the word as it has been heard in our ears audible, so in our eyes visible, that we might be stirred up in our faith, encouraged and emboldened to glorify you, Lord Jesus, as we see a picture of your authority and of your truth and your redemptive work in baptism today. In Jesus' name, amen.